Give a praise the Lord for the cool weather. Can you give a more heartfelt praise the Lord for the cool weather? Praise the Lord. Okay, good. Yeah, we're enjoying the very beginning of fall now, and it's a really nice time of year. Maybe this is a time of year that you like to sit for a little bit in the morning with a cup of coffee or tea and just enjoy the changing world and watch the leaves and, and maybe some of the animals that are starting to look for food for the winter and you're sitting out on your porch or somewhere that's a favorite place doing some devotional time. And if so, uh, maybe what we're doing in the next three weeks will be helpful to you. We're going to spend three weeks talking about the book of Proverbs, and I think this is just perfect for the time of year when we're watching God's world change, and we're thinking about the wisdom of his creation, and we're meditating on some of God's works and his acts, because we can at the same time meditate on these words. And so Proverbs, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this as God's wisdom for living. Okay, so Proverbs... God's wisdom for living. And we'll talk a little bit this morning about what we mean by his wisdom for living. How are these God's wisdom for life? But specifically, here's where we're going to start today. And I don't want you to all, uh, you know, just get up and run out of the building. Some of you are going to say, finally, it's about time we had a sermon on the fear of the Lord. Right? Like this has been, the preaching's been too soft and we need to step on some toes. It's about time that we talked about the fear of the Lord. So guess what? Today's your day. We're going to talk about the fear of the Lord, okay? But some of you are saying that's the exact reason that I never liked church to start with, is there was so much fear in church. Like there was what I felt like was condemnation, and and I, I love that we talk about grace. I need some grace in my life. And so for some of you, you're thinking the fear of the Lord, that doesn't sound like wisdom for anything, And so this is also for you, but I think if you just stick with it for a few minutes, that you'll see that what God is trying to do in verses like this theme verse that we'll read together right here is to impress on us something that will change the way you look at the goodness of life. You won't be able to measure it the same after uh, understanding what we're looking at today. So here's, here's our theme verse for today about the fear of the Lord. This is from the beginning of Proverbs. It's verse seven in chapter one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. Okay, so this is the claim that Proverbs is making, is that where all knowledge starts, where wisdom begins, intelligence, right, it starts here at learning how to fear God, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I'm going to invite you for just a moment to pray with me as we ask God to be with us while we talk about the fear of the Lord. Our God and our Father, we come before you We know that you are good. We know that you love us. We know this because you sent Jesus for us and we believe that you have a plan for us that is good. And yet at the same time, when we think about how holy you are, about how perfect you are, about what you want us to become when you tell us to be holy as you are holy, God, what you want us to be as we're trying to learn obedience in our lives, Sometimes it's fearful for us to think about how separate and apart and different you are. And we want to live with wisdom, God. We want to be people who have wise lives. Please give us understanding today and be with us as we read these scriptures. Give us the joy of the book of Proverbs. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and all who agree say, amen. Amen. Here's a question that I asked a lot when I was young 
And I want to know if you've asked the same question. I suspect that you probably have. What would you do if you had a million bucks? Anybody here ever thought about this before? What would you do if you had a million bucks? Only seven or eight of you? Nobody else has ever considered this. The rest of you have a million dollars, don't you? Yeah. So we would do this game when I was a kid, you know, my brothers and I or my parents and I, where we'd be like, what would you do if you just suddenly found a million dollars? You know, and we'd be like, well, of course, uh, we would always start off trying to sound very noble. So we'd be like, you know, we'll give, we'll give like a half a million of it to the church because we're going to have so much, like we won't need that much, you know. Uh, and then we'd be like, okay, so after that, what would you do? And we'd be like, well, we'd put some away for college. Or we'd put some away to pay off the house. Like, it'd be nice if we could help mom and dad pay off the house. And then we started getting down to the good stuff, right? And so then it would be like, I can buy that baseball glove that I've always wanted and, and a bag to put it in and a couple of new bats. In fact, I'll buy the whole team new uniforms, right? Or, ooh, also baseball-related, I will buy every Topps baseball card that has ever been printed. And so like I would dream and I would think about like what would I do if I had a million dollars? I'm sure uh, as I've grown up and as you have grown up, you've probably had some more serious things you've thought about. You know, uh, how would you pay off this debt? How would you get out of this life problem? Maybe you could finally be free to go back to school or to start a new career or do something. But I want you to think about right now in your heads. You can write it down on your, on your program today, but I want you thinking about it in your heads. What would be the thing that you would do if you came across this incredible treasure, a million bucks or whatever? Uh, maybe you've dreamed of finding something like this in the ground. Maybe as a kid like me, you went out and you dug a little bit and you thought, Surely somebody buried treasure around here somewhere. And you would dig and you would search and you would look around hoping to just strike it rich. There's a guy in England, uh, this guy who's in the picture right here. Uh, he actually did find buried treasure just last year in 2015. Treasure still being dug up around the world once in a while. So uh, this is just a little farmer's field about 40 miles west of London, England. And here's what he found buried in the dirt. Gold and silver coins, jewelry, and these, uh, these little like bars of precious metal uh, that were just like, you know, melted down and, and, and meant to be turned into something later. And he found this whole hoard of Viking treasure in the ground in England. Now this story has a little bit of a sad ending because under the British laws, he doesn't get to keep it. But what if you found this? What would you do? And I want you to think today uh, about this verse in Proverbs that, that likens wisdom to treasure. It says that finding good answers for life is like finding precious treasure. So in the message version, Proverbs 2 verse 4 says this. Search for it, search for wisdom like a prospector panning for gold like an adventurer on a treasure hunt. So you're allowed to engage all your childhood fantasies and get out your metal detector again and your shovel this month and go and look for treasure because the Proverbs encourage you, just like an adventurer looking for treasure, search for it. And by it, he means wisdom. And so the Bible likens wisdom to treasure. Here's the question why do you and I think this way? 
Why do children dream about what they would do if they found, you know, a Viking horde? Why do adults sometimes wish, man, I just really hope this lottery ticket comes through? You know, like, why do we all maybe hope that there's like a a rich uncle out there somewhere that we never really had to like get to know and love, but maybe he'd just leave us an inheritance? Why do we think that way? My problems would be solved if I just struck it rich. I think this is the reason. Money is condensed value. Think about this. Money is the condensation of everything in your life that can be turned into some other type of value. If you have time and you get paid for your time, they give you money in exchange for your very valuable and limited time. If you have goods that nobody else has, this is why they give you a 20, right? They give you a $20 bill because you've built something or made something or have two of something that somebody else needs. So you've taken the thing that people actually need and you've kind of condensed it down into money or skill. You can paint, you can photograph, you can sing, you can create in a way that nobody else can. And so what do they do? They give you money in exchange to see it, in exchange to hear it. All of the things in life that we produce are condensed into money. Maybe you could picture it like this on the screen behind me. All of those things get melted down into money. Okay, well, wisdom works almost the same way. Wisdom is just the condensation of experience. And so when you have somebody who already knows how to do something, and they are able to put it in a book, maybe you call it knowledge. When you have somebody who knows how to live through something, and they can put it in a proverb like two little pithy lines. My favorite of all the proverbs is this sluggard who comes up over and over in the book of Proverbs. The sluggard is like the comic relief in Proverbs. And so somebody, based on their experience of watching lazy people, said, I'll come up with a proverb that's the condensed experience of what it's like to watch the sluggard. And so one of them says, as a door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns in his bed. Right? There's his work for the day. And somebody observed this and said, man, that's just not the way to do life. Like, that doesn't get you anywhere. It just, creak, all you've done is turn, you've produced nothing. And so they took this experience of watching it and they condensed it into something you'd remember. This funny guy named the sluggard. We'll talk about him some more in the weeks to come. If you were to take the same picture of skill and time and products, the things we condense into money and you were to talk about wisdom, it would look like this. Valuable experiences, things that are wise and wisdom for life gets condensed into these wisdom sayings that we have in the Bible. We've got all of these books of wisdom, the the book of Job, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Lamentations. We got all of this wisdom that's condensed for us. And here is what's so cool about why it's useful. If you've got the money, if you've got the million dollars, this is what you want to do with it. This is why you've hoped for it, why you want to discover the treasure hoard. Because you can turn the arrow the opposite direction. You can take the condensation of other people's skill and products and time that you've found in a hole in the ground, something that other people fought for, something that other people sold, something that other people built, something that other people saved, right? If you find a treasure hoard, this has all been done by somebody else. And so it's in the ground and all you have to do is take it back out of the ground and you just turn the arrow the other way and then you buy other people's skills with it. You pay for other people's time. You buy their products and so the reason 
you've wanted to strike it rich is because you would like to be able to use it to get the products of life. All of the things that normally you'd have to work for and save for. It's kind of like an easy way out. But God says you can turn the arrow the other way on wisdom. He's not promising to just give you enough money to solve all your problems, but he says this. I'll give you, here in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, wisdom that's already condensed. It's already in a memorable saying. It's already a valuable life experience. And you can read it and put it in your heart, and then it will turn into, in your life, the things that it had been before it was condensed. It will turn into better decisions, a better home life, a better work life, better relationships, how to answer your boss the right way, how to answer your spouse the right way, how to train your children. It'll turn into, from the little condensed sayings, the stuff of life that you really want. And so, Proverbs are kind of like buried treasure. And you could say this, wisdom is the skill of living. Wisdom is the skill of living well. We all live until we die, right? But do we do it well? And so wisdom helps you navigate and do well all of the things in your life. Wisdom is the skill of living. Look at Proverbs with me, starting at the very beginning in chapter one, starting in verse one. This is a description by the book of Proverbs on what Proverbs is here to do. This is Proverbs on Proverbs. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Did you hear what this says? It says wisdom is condensed experience. Look at it again. To help them understand the insights of the wise. Somebody out there in the world before you, who lived before you, lived a wise life. And they looked at their life and they evaluated the things that happened and they gained insight. They were able to say, like, based on my experience and my evaluated experience, I've learned something. And so the insights of the wise help you. It's condensed experience. Look at verse three. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives to help them do what is right, just, and fair. In other words, like we've already said, wisdom's the skill of living. Look at it again. A disciplined life, a successful life, to learn what's right, just, and fair. These are the skills of living. You wanna be successful. And so the Proverbs are the skill of living. Look at the next verse, verse four. This is all Proverbs explaining Proverbs. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. So people who don't know yet will gain from reading what's already been done. In other words, it's condensed experience, just like where we've already been. And then verse five, let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. And so not only the people who don't know can learn, but the people who already know will learn more and will learn better. In other words, Proverbs never runs out of good stuff to give you, no matter how mature you are in your faith or how long you've gone with God. There is something more even the wise can learn. In other words, wisdom's the skill of living. And so over and over, you see the introduction to Proverbs saying these two things. I have condensed it down for you 
made it easy for you to take. Now you just need to unpack it and learn how to live well. By exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. And this brings us to our verse, the verse we started with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now this is the point where I expect some of you to say, hold on. I really liked all of the stuff you were talking about, about buried treasure and wealth and unpacking wisdom. It's this fear of the Lord thing I'd rather save for another day. So let's go back to our verse about treasure hunting. Proverbs 2 verse 4. Search for it for wisdom like a prospector painting for gold. Like an adventurer on a treasure hunt. Here's the next verse. Verse 5. Believe me, before you know it on your treasure hunt, fear of God will be yours. And so even when Proverbs says you can unearth this treasure in Proverbs, all of these riches will be yours, the riches it's pointing to is this thing, the fear of God. The fear of God will be yours. You'll have come upon the knowledge of God. And so over and over, Proverbs talks about the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is where it all starts. Condensed wisdom, the successful life, it all starts with fearing God. And so we need to understand better, what does this mean? Maybe you'll say this to me. I thought the Bible said not to be afraid. I thought the Bible said don't fear. Maybe you'll say this. I thought the Bible said not to be afraid 365 times. How many of you have ever heard this in a lesson or a Devo or on a website? Put your hands up high. How many of you have ever heard, the Bible says do not fear once for every day of the year, 365 times? Okay, yeah, I've heard this too. There's a problem with this. Somebody wasn't very good at counting. And I'll show you in a minute what I mean, but the Bible doesn't have to say things once for every day for it to be true. The Bible only has to say something once for it to be true, right? Okay, and so we'll come back to that in a second, but here's just one example. One place where the Bible says don't be afraid. This is the only one you would ever need. You don't need 364 more. Do not be afraid, Exodus 20, 20. Do you remember what's happening in Exodus chapter 20? God is showing himself to Israel by the appearance of fire on the mountain. They're not even allowed to touch the base of the mountain, or if they do, they'll die. And God says to them through Moses, even though I've told you you'll die if you touch the mountain, don't be afraid. Now that doesn't really sound like knowledge, does it? It sounds like they should be afraid. And so this is what God says next. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you. And now you're like, see, I knew the Bible was just like all turning tails on itself. Look at the first line, don't be afraid. And the second line, why? so that the fear of God will be with you. How do you make sense of this? Don't be afraid so that you'll be afraid. Don't be afraid so that the fear of God will be with you. Here's the last part of the verse. Don't be afraid, God's come to test you so the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, you'll go and sin no more. Remember what he said to others, he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And so God says, I don't want you to be in terror of me, but you kind of need to be afraid of things that will hurt you, things like sin. So let's unpack this a little bit. 
What does it mean that we can fear and not be afraid? Do not be afraid, but fear the Lord at the same time. I want you to look at this on your bulletin program and underline it or highlight it or write it somewhere else, but this is what I want you to remember today. This is the one takeaway that I believe can really bless our understanding of Proverbs. Fearing God by revering him as holy, and you notice this is interpreting this, this is, this is saying reverence of God, not terror of God, but holy fear, fearing God by revering him as holy, is not a posture of hiding. You can't be behind the rock going, na 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 don't see him, and understand the fear of God. You can actually be in terror of God and not know the fear of God. The fear of God by revering him as holy is not a posture of hiding. It's a posture of drawing near. Here's why. God isn't safe. He's not safe. If you were to come to the mountain where he was appearing as fire in Exodus 20, what would happen to you? He would have melted your face off. This is what my Old Testament professor at Harding liked to say to us a lot. Don't get too comfortable with God. He will melt your face off. <laughs> I think he was trying to instill in us some of the fear of the Lord. Or at least some respect and reverence for the things that we were talking about. Right? God isn't safe. But this is why you shouldn't fear. He is good. How can you put these two things together? He's not safe, but he's good. Well, here's a quote from a C.S. Lewis. I know everybody likes to quote C.S. Lewis, but we're going to use him for the next three weeks kind of extensively. And C.S. Lewis wrote this children's story about Narnia, a place where animals can talk, and there's a lion who represents God. He represents Jesus Christ in the story. He's the creator of this world, Narnia, and he's extremely powerful. He's impressive, and these children who arrive in Narnia are starting to learn that animals can talk because they meet a beaver and his wife, and his name is Mr. Beaver, which is very appropriate. And so this is, this is what they ask him when they learn about Aslan, the creator of all of Narnia. Uh, they're like, you know, interested in who is this guy. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Don't you just love the way that, you know, British characters say things? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Wouldn't you too? I've been to the cat sanctuary in Eureka Springs. Yeah, they're all fun and games and fuzzballs when they're in the corner until one gets up and starts prowling near the bars 24 inches away from you and you're like, look at the muscle in that guy. Who is brave enough to go get him and put him in the cage? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, right? He's a lion, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so we have this picture in our minds of like, what is it like when you know that something is good, but it isn't safe, but you really can't enjoy it unless you approach it? Hiding from God will never produce the right fear of the Lord, but coming to God even though it's frightening, even though he could melt your face off, is where wisdom is found. 
You know, there was a time whenever I got to go to the Grand Canyon, and I'll never forget the first time I stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon, and I looked out into the expanse, where at some point, I guess, God just sort of like went, and made a scratch. And it goes, what, a mile down at the deepest point. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking out over this, and it is so deep and so distant and so far to the other side that I felt like I was in a J.C. Penney photo booth room where they've got one of those really flat backgrounds. The depth perception was so off because of how immense it was, I thought I could stick my hand right through it like a screen and poke through to the other side. Have you ever been to a powerful waterfall? From a distance, the waterfall is crashing and you can hear it and you can see a little mist at the bottom, but it's not really that impressive. Oh sure, it's good, it's beautiful, but to really understand the waterfall, you have to draw near to it. You have to come to the base of it. When the spray of Niagara is kind of washing over your body, do you feel safe? No. A wrong step, a slip, and I'm falling into this Grand Canyon. I'm crushed by the waterfall, but I don't appreciate the beauty or the goodness or the grandeur until I've approached and come near. And so God says the same thing. You know, he's not safe, but he's good. Do not be afraid so that I can teach you the fear of the Lord. I did something because I thought maybe this would help us to understand a little bit about what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. And I thought some of you who have been doing this for a long time and reading your Bibles for a long time would really appreciate this. I did a search for how many times in our scriptures does this term, fear of the Lord, fear of God, the fear of the Lord, I wrote it out about six or seven of the most common ways in the English Bible so that we could find all the places where it says fear of the Lord. And here's what you've got. Every one of those little pink lines is where it shows up. Just, just for impact, here's how many pages of places, you're not supposed to read this, you're just supposed to see this. How many pages of places does it say, fear God, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord? Here's a whole page. Here's a second whole page. Here's another half a page of references in the Bible that say, fear the Lord. How many are there? He's not safe. 95 times in the Bible, in, eight, in 94 different verses, it says, he should be feared. In other words, have some respect and awe as you approach God. He's not safe. He'll melt your face off 95 times. But also, I wanted to know, does it really say 365 times, do not be afraid? And what I found out is that that's quite an exaggeration. Uh, do not fear the same type of search right here on the screen. You can see all the pink lines and a few red ones where it says it multiple times in the same passage. But here's what we got. How many times? One page, two page, two and a half pages. Interesting, right? 95 times in 88 verses it says, do not fear. Now, almost anybody, by how you tweak your search, could probably make this look like a couple more or a couple less. But the point is this. It doesn't say 365 times in the scriptures, do not be afraid. But almost or exactly once for every time it says, do not be afraid, it says, fear God. And for every time it says, be afraid of the Lord, he could melt your face off, it says, but do not be terrified of God. Come near Anyways, balance, where God says, I need you to learn some balance. Can you approach me with respect 
And at the same time, learn not to be terrified of me. Fear God happens more often in the poetic books. Do not fear God happens more often in the prophetic books. Did you hear that? Fear God happens more often in the poetic books and do not fear happens more often in the prophetic books. Now this won't mean the same thing to all of you, but again, for some of you who've been studying scripture for your life, you kind of know this. The poetic books, this is the dark yellow column in the middle. These are the books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And the prophetic books like the light yellow column and the green one over there on the right is Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the minor prophets. We're used to thinking of the prophets as talking about doom and destruction. And you would think, if you were a Bible scholar, if you've been a Christian all your life, that in the prophets where God says, repent, like repent, it's doom and destruction unless you repent, that he would say, fear God, be afraid of God, but he doesn't. All the times that he says, do not fear, are concentrated in the prophets. So when God is saying, repent, 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 at the same time he's saying, but don't be afraid. And the times when the people of God who love God most are writing songs of praise and proverbs of condensed wisdom, they're saying, but what does a real wise life look like? Someone who fears the Lord. And so it is the exact opposite of what you would expect. In fact, more than half of the times in the scripture where it says, fear the Lord, is in Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. So this is where I'll leave you today. You cannot fear God appropriately by hiding from him. You've got to draw near. And if you're trying to do this this month with us, here's something you might consider. This is just a, a personal devotion that my wife put me on to that I've been using for a week and a half now. There's an app for men called He Reads Truth. And there's one for women that's called She Reads Truth. You can find them in the App Store. You can find them in the Google Play Store. You can even read them online. If you want, you can order a physical book. But there's a devotional on Proverbs that I've been going through just for my personal devotions as I've been preparing to preach on Proverbs this month. And I would encourage you, take the opportunity to unpack what God has put in Scripture and live wisely. If we can pray for you, if you want to be baptized, or in anything else that the church can do for you, please come and share it with us today at the front or the back as we stand and we sing.